Most Unforgettable Characters 5. The Angel from Maine by Robert P. Tristrain Coffin My mother was a combination of wizard and angel. She had to be to keep up with such a man as my father and to raise his ten children on bleak, remote Maine islands. My father, though he wore a stand-up dickey on Sundays, was not content unless he was breaking in new steers, new boys, or new islands. So my mother had to do housekeeping in hard places and learn to piece together our food from woods and sea. She made us puddings from the sea moss we gathered at ebb tide. She gathered hemlock bark, penny royal, and yarrow for our medicine closet, for doctors could not get to us in months like March or December. We children gathered wild honey from dead trees and wild apples that went into her jellies. She introduced tame strawberries into the clearing that we boys hacked out of the balsam thickets. But she also put up wild raspberries, gooseberries, currants, and blueberries. Her cellar was like a cathedral with a stained glass of hundreds of jars of preserves. There were lobsters and crabs and mackerel in jars down there, too. I think we could have lived fat for a whole year without moving out of our house. In every season, her preserve kettle was simmering on the back of the stove and filled the whole house with scents of the forest or sea. Just the other day, I ate some wild crab apple jelly made from the fruit that grew on our saltwater farm years ago. We children sometimes gathered cranberries on the salt marsh by lantern light when frost threatened our winter's sauce for roast goose. We fought the red squirrels for every beechnut hazelnut on the farm and took the blackberries right from under the sharp noses of the raccoons. When fish were running in September, we wallowed in the silver hordes, gathering the baby blue fish and herring, which mother would lay down in stone crocks with vinegar. Mother also took her toll of eels and flounder we, spe we speared, as well as lobsters and crabs we caught in our homemade traps. It was the same with wood for the stove. Each boy had his stint of so many armfuls to saw up and lug in, just as every girl had so many seams to sew each day. By the same token, mother would lend a hand in bending the bows of a boy's first lobster trap and cut out dresses for girl's doll. She was a wizard at laying the ribs for a boy's dory, steaming the oak with her tea kettle to make it curve the right way. Mother used to say that she lived on every untamed island in Costco Bay. The first was spruce, where Mother had to fight the hawks to keep them from carrying off her chickens. The eagles sometimes carried off her lambs. Winters, my father had to drive his oxen over a good part of frozen bay to get home. One night the animals went through. Another night father went through himself. But mother, always a light sleeper, as becomes a pioneer mother, heard him cry out. She ran out on the ice with a pole and a lantern and drew father out of the chill death he was in up to his armpits. Nights of loneliness and fear there were many, but my mother faced them triumphantly. She raised children 
by bold water where a misstep meant one less child. She might nurse a baby at a bean patch's end and then go back to her hoeing. It was all in a day's work. She taught my brothers to spell between trips with her wheelbarrow hauling rockweed to fertilize her roses. Mother rode her small children safely home from burying on neighbors' islands through fog and squall. We grew up at home in woods where bobcats howled and in dories among high rolling waves. One stormy November night, when Mother was hauling corn, she saw a face staring at her through the window. It was an Indian man. He lifted the door latch and came in, saying not a word. He untied a bundle of birch baskets and set them to dry on the hearthstone, then vanished into the night. Next morning at dawn, he came back for his baskets. He counted them and grunted his thanks. Then he signed in sign language. He ordered my mother to fetch him a piece of cloth. He filled it full of ashes from the hearth, knotted it into a bag, and threw it in mother's big kettle of hulled corn. It was what his squaw had always done. The wood ashes peeled off the skins from the sallow kernels of corn better than any lie had ever done. So mother learned one more trick from the wild. The next island we lived on was Pond Island. Our nearest neighbor was two miles of open ocean away. Our house had to be anchored down with hawsers when the gales beat on it. My mother sifted the ropes when the wind changed. If father wasn't there to do it, it was a lonesome place, but we were too many and too busy to mind the vast solitude around us. We lived snug on pond despite our bleak surroundings. Mother kept us warm with driftwood. She taught us all, boys and girls alike, how to rig lines and catch cod. When we could not go to school, she kept our noses in our books from nine o'clock to noon. She taught me, the youngest, to add, subtract, and multiply by the white seashells I used to bring up from the beach. When we moved away from pond, my father brought up his schooner, pushed the house onto her deck, then sailed up the bay and set us all down on Sebescodi again. There a wandering house was finally anchored for good. We children helped clear the forest and build a barn. Mother pitched in and helped with the haying. She helped father with his twenty hives of bees. She could handle bees at times when father got so badly stung he had to fling himself into the ocean. Mother had a hundred hens. She never let one of us come near them. Children, especially boys, put hens out of their serenity, she said. The eggs were her pin money and she used it for little extras such as piano lessons or dolls for the girls who had not skipped sweeping her room for a whole year. With her vast kettles, earthen crocks and iron spoons, and a fireplace as well as the kitchen stove always going full blast in six cold months, Mother turned out square rods of roast meats and fish. How many acres of golden johnny cakes and gingerbread she made for hungry boys no one but an astronomer could ever figure out. 
her blueberry cakes would make a heart sing. Because she had to do without most rotten things, Mother knew all the tricks of pioneer housekeeping. She kept her milk sweet in a dark cupboard till the cream rose on it like yellow velvet half an inch thick. She put her fish and vinegar in crisscross layers, and they came out without bones. Working wizardry with salt and smoke, she kept her meats unspoiled and tasty without a refrigerator. You might think that a woman so busy keeping house and raising ten children in a wilderness surrounded by the sea would have little time for culture. Mother was delicate, a quiet little woman, and gentle as the west wind. I never heard her raise her voice to correct a boy on the rampage, but that gentle word of hers was law. Her wit was like a razor, and her judgment infallible. I never knew her equal for a sizing up a person accurately. She knew when a man or a boy was small potatoes and few to the hill. When mother dressed her com company, she blossomed out into an elegant lady. She could talk about books and what was going on in the world. How she found time to read and keep posted on affairs, goodness only knows. My mother was an angel, all right, an angel with granite and iron in her spine. When father died, she moved us to town and saw her children through school and several through college. She retained the Sabacodian farm as her anchor to windward to keep us in milk and eggs and to provide hard work with our hands and backs for the good of our souls. This strong small woman was the center of her son's and daughter's lives for forty years. She was like the head of a clan and grown men and women consulted her as they had done when they were in short pants and short dresses. She lived to, to have 28 grandchildren. My mother was a model mother, a hard worker, a believer in large families, willing to live her best life in her children. A woman of foresight and thrift, she trained her children to be independent and thorough and hard-working men and women of spirit and sound character. On her last farm of all, among wild poppies and bayberry, there are three lovely circles of white every May, which is the wild things have tried unsuccessfully to choke out. They are the narcissus my mother had as the center of her flower bed. The woman who planted them has gone to sleep in the earth, but her flowers, strong and fragrant as ever, keep her memory shining and alive. They could be no better monument to her. Young Gentleman's Gentleman by James Saxon Childers In my early teens I dreamed of going to Oxford University. Then I won a Rhodes Scholarship and the dream came true. But in my first hour at Oxford, as I stood in my chilly bleak room, I wished I'd never left Alabama. Everything was so strange. The towers of Oxford, the poet's dreaming spires, to me were cold gray stone against a dull gray sky. I was a twenty-year-old American boy in a foreign land for the first time, and lonely, a little frightened and homesick. The door of my dormitory room opened, and a tall man, lean and sharp-featured, stood in the entrance. 
He was perhaps fifty years old. I noticed the perfect fit of his suit, the gold watch chain across his chest, and his clipped moustache. I figured he was at least the dean. I am Wyatt, sir, he said, staring fixedly at a point above my head. I am your servant, sir, he pronounced it servant. I managed to say, That's fine, Wyatt. I'm sure we'll get along fine. Thank you, sir. And what will you have for luncheon, sir? I could think of nothing. Pretending not to notice my confusion, he suggested, Most of the young gentlemen take common, sir. Fine. I'll have some common. I had no idea what I was getting. Thank you, sir. A stiff bow, and my servant was gone. My study was about twelve to fifteen feet. It contained a table, two chairs, a sofa, a fireplace, and a scuttle of coal on the hearth. Two small rooms opened off. One had a dining table, four chairs and a sideboard, and the other an iron cot, beneath which was a china chamber pot and a washstand on which stood a bowl and pitcher. I went down into the study. It was a damp, the stony walls sweated in the foggy October air. Seven hundred years before, it had been the cell of a Benedictine monk. All my dreams of Oxford were now reduced to this barren cell. When Wyatt had come into the room and into my life, the Tudors and the Dones taught me the leaning of the centuries. Wyatt translated this into the simpler language of daily living. And while never preaching, he lived a sermon for me to see. He taught me, among other things, how slight is the gap between servant and master. Wyatt served twelve stairways, twelve of us young gentlemen. He lighted the fires before we got up. He put our breakfasts on the tables. If we were sleeping too late, he banged the poker and tongs until sleep was impossible. While we went to the showers, he cleaned our rooms. Most Oxford men study in their rooms all morning and want no interruption. At midday, Wyatt brought our lunches, usually commons, a crust of bread, sliver of cheese, and half a pint of ale. Invariably, he dwaddled in clearing the luncheon dishes and cloth, for he feared his young gentleman might remain indoors. In England, sir, one must exercise every morning, the climate, you know. Regardless of the cold rain or fog, he drove us from our rooms, sending us out for rowing, rugby, cricket, or tennis. If we didn't go out, Wyatt kept coming in. He had forgotten his dishcloth. Was there enough coal, anything to be such a nuisance that we'd get up and go out? At seven o'clock, when the bell began, its slow tolling, and all the black-clad dons and scholars marched into the great hall for dinner, Wyatt stood beside high table and received the tasseled hats of the dons. Bowing to each, he remained rigid while the Latin prayers were spoken. Then, with the other servants, he began to pass the food and bring the silver mugs of beer and ale. The Oxford plan of serving beer, wines, and whiskies to students 
was startling to me. It is against university rules for an undergraduate to enter a public bar, but most colleges sell beer and liquor by the drink, bottle or barrel. Such a novel arrangement led me one evening to show off before the English students to prove that we Americans are of steady head, and staunch stomach. I showed off a bit too well. Wyatt, who seemed always to know about everything, tiptoed into my room the next morning, bearing a cup of tea. He dipped a towel in cold water and laid it on my forehead. I mumbled that I was wretched and horribly ashamed. It's quite all right, sir. Many a gentleman is drunk once in his life. I never have been drunk since. At Oxford, there are six week vacations at Christmas and Easter. And the three month long vacation in summer, normally American road scholars wander over Europe. In my first vacation, I followed the custom and spent Christmas in Paris. I brought back a bottle of absinthe. As Wyatt unpacked my bags, he asked all about my trip. When he came to the bottle of absinthe, he said, Asking your pardon, sir, but isn't absinthe a dangerous drink? I waved the common aside. I waved the common aside. Hadn't I sipped absinthe in dozen little cafes on the left bank? Wyatt bowed and put the bottle on the shelf. A few days later, while serving my lunch, he remarked that Oscar Wilde had drunk himself to death on absinthe. I understand its habit forming, sir. Again, I paid no attention to him. That afternoon, I returned from playing rugby football, and my dictionary was open on the table. Two books lay across the page, covering all of it except the definition of absinthe. A green alcoholic liquor containing oils of wormwood and anise, and other aromatics. Its continued use causes nervous derangement. I tossed the dictionary aside. Two days later, my bottle was withdrawn. Wyatt never mentioned it, nor did I. As I grew to know Wyatt, he permitted me an informality which he denied his other charges. Perhaps it was because an American, I was more dependent on him. He demonstrated the correct procedure in presenting himself to the assembled dons. He spent hours discussing Oxford, the tradition of England, the ways of Americans. He asked about Alabama and my parents. He told me about himself. Man and boy, sir, I have been a college servant for thirty-five years. There was pride in his voice, for to be associated with Oxford in whatever way is distinction. Wyatt was without conceit, but he was vain about his dress. His coat modeled his tall, slim body, and his trousers were sharply pressed. Breaking properly at the cuff, his tie was quiet and correct. He was far more scrupulous about my dress than I was. Occasionally, I would miss a shirt. Wyatt would remark that the collar was worn, the cuffs frayed. He had withdrawn it from my wardrobe. He recommended his tailor to me, but returned the first pair of plus fours I ordered. They are unsatisfactory at the knee, sir, 
why it had them altered, and I could tell no difference. I learned in a strange way of his disapproval of a pair of gloves I had brought from America. Each Oxford college is surrounded by thick stone walls about ten feet high, topped with spikes and broken bottles. Every undergraduate must be inside his college walls at midnight. Once I was caught out and, assisted by a boot from a town policeman, climbed the wall. One of my woolen gloves, violet, yellow, and red and green in color, caught on a spike, and I had to leave it dangling, evidence of my offense. Next morning the glove was turned over to the dean, who placed a notice on the bulletin board. Some gentleman left his glove on the spikes last night. He may regain his property by calling at the rooms of the dean. Wyatt saw the notice before I did, told me about it, and added, I have destroyed the incriminating companion glove, sir. I did it with pleasure, for it was a gaudy and unworthy garment. Wyatt was a snob about Cambridge University. Oxford was the seat of learning, the home of gentlemen scholars, and by implication, the haven of superior servants. Cambridge, sir, is a boisterous place. He matriculated his own son at Oxford. I might have been easier on my son to attend Cambridge, but the idea is distasteful to me. They are a rowdy lot. The only strain between us was the fact that Wyatt never would sit down in my room. Once late at night, when he was long past duty hours and still lingered to talk, explaining cricket to me, I asked him to sit with me. He thanked me, but remained standing. Once, when he was leaving on a cold night, I offered him a drink. He drew quickly erect, and his stare reproved me. Then, with a slow smile, "'You Americans never quite learn, do you, sir?' he bowed. "'I would enjoy a drink, but it isn't done.' Wyatt lived in a pretty brick house near the college. He had a garden, and every spring morning he came riding along on his bicycle, smiling and speaking to his friends from behind big bunch of flowers. He fixed a bowl of poppies and sweet peas or roses in the room of each of his young gentlemen. Whenever I had guests during the spring term, my room was filled with flowers. I had tourist visitors from America. Why, it would ransack all his students' rooms and assemble all the best linen and silver for the occasion. Wyatt was acclaimed by his fellow servants and the townspeople of Oxford as a sportsman. He played for thirteen years at the University College Servants team. He was on the football team, which won the City Junior League. He rowed for a rowing club and was a member of the golf club. Yet for thirty-five years he came to work at seven in the morning, and his final duty ended at nine o'clock at night. One spring, I saw Wyatt playing cricket for the Worcester College servants against the servants of Christ College. In this match, I watched him approach a cricketer's dream, the scoring of a hundred runs, making his century. Batting with sureness and grace, he passed seventy-five. 
85.95 The crowd tensed and no one spoke. 99. The bowler threw. The ball was a streak from Wyatt's bat to the boundary. He had done it. Well played, Billy. Well done, Billy. I looked at the cheering spectators and all the tall men in white flannels standing beside the wicket. Billy, had this man another name besides Wyatt? Had I lived with him these years and known only part of him? William Claude Wyatt knew the works of Charles Dickens and Sir Walter Scott. However, he had picked up a little Latin. But the best reading, sir, is the Bible, he said to me one night. Americans are impatient. They arrive here talking of degrees and seeking an itemized education. They must know when classes meet. What textbooks will they use? He shrugged. We have none of that. Oxford, sir, is a way of life. It does not come from lectures and formal study. It is absorbed until a man knows what is good and true. One week I was more interested in the Grand National Race than my books. I let my study slide and finally turned in an essay on Oliver Goldsmith, which was based more on bluff than knowledge. My tutor listened, hidden as usual behind the smoke of his pipe, and when I finished said, An interesting essay, I declare. Matter of fact, I have only one question concerning it. Have you at any time in your life read a single line written by a man named Oliver Goldsmith? Back in my rooms, I was indignant. When White came in, I told him what had happened. He had his nerve, asking if I had read a single line by Oliver Goldsmith. White's face was chiseled with granite. Have you, sir? As time for my final examination drew near, Wyatt was merciless. Each morning he cleared my breakfast dishes and covered the table with my books. If he found a novel beside my reading chair, he returned it to the shelf. Whenever we were alone, he asked, How are you doing, sir? Will we be ready? I have been down to Oxford many years after I left. I often heard from Wyatt. Then one day a letter came. Mrs. Wyatt is very well. My son Cyril is getting married in October. He is now in a firm of chartered accountants, but hopes some day to set up for himself. I am afraid I cannot tell you good news about myself, as I am waiting to go into hospital. I don't think I can start the October term. Well, we all have our bothers. Joy to all your house, and good-bye to you, sir. Yours obediently. A few weeks later, I received a clipping from the Oxford Times. It was headed, Funeral of W.C. Wyatt. He was sixty when he died. I am sorry I never saw him after I was older. I would like to have said, Thank you, sir.